Hey, we're in week two of our preaching series, new series, uh, New Mercies. The premise is that constant change, change happens. It's, it's a, a fact of life, um, always challenging and very often upsetting. <laughs> but in all circumstances and all situations, God provides new mercies for those who will lean into his will and, and his, his kingdom. Um, last week, we learned from the teacher in Ecclesiastes that in the face of a fairly unpredictable world, um, three pieces of advice very quickly, starting in number three. Life does, not, does have meaning, even if we don't understand it, the Lord will clear the smoke and the, the vapor, the havel, um, and bring justice. And we talked about this last week. The best explanation, the best example, the best illustration of this is, is the life and death resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second thing that we learned from the teacher is to enjoy the simple things, the good and the bad. Both are actually good things from God. Um, hold life with an open hand. From our perspective, a lot of things seem inherently good, bad, whatever. And again, we, you've all experienced this. At the end of the day, you didn't know good from bad. God was the only one, and he, he did something amazing. Um, and then number one, and I kind of springboard off of this this morning, since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. <laughs> Don't go overboard on that one. <laughs> like Douglas said, you got you to you keep trying. Um, the only thing you have control over is your attitude. And this morning I want to talk about our attitude um, in, as it relates to something rather, rather specific. Um, our attitudes towards God's apparent ways and means and methods of sanctifying us. And that's a big church word of growing us in our faith. Right, I'm going to use growing and sanctifying interchangeably here. Um, just don't, don't. It's not two different things. Um, specifically, God wants to sanctify us. I don't know if you're aware of that. He, he desperately wants to grow us in our faith. Um, and many of us want to be sanctified. <laughs> Not all of us, but many of us do. We, we, we want to be sanctified. Um, and nearly all of us, once we find out what it's all about, we either misunderstand the sanctification project, uh, process or we intensely dislike God's plan, his process. Either we misunderstand it or we dislike it. There's, there's not a whole lot of else to stand uh, for, for many folks. But once you understand God's plan for growing you, um, it will get lots easier to kind of lean into it and embrace it and recognize it that it is an amazing thing and it will be an amazing ride. Um, now, you might have heard of a seemingly new and novel way or method or means of moving towards or realizing a more perfect union. But, I, but before I show you it, um, it's not new. It's not novel. This has been around since the beginning of mankind, this idea. Um, but with the birth of Internet high speed and all that, this thing has just gotten wheels now, right? Now it's just kind of pumped up on steroids. I mean, it's called cancel culture. Uh, maybe you've heard of this. Another term is, is the calling out culture. Um, just, just a definition here. It's the removal or canceling of support for individuals and their work due to an opinion or action on their part deemed objectionable to the parties calling them out. Right, let me say that one more time. Removal or canceling of support of an individual or their work due to an opinion or an action on their part that was objectionable to the parties now calling them out. You see somebody on the, in, in your neighborhood and they're, they, they're throwing trash out the window, so instead of going and talking to them, you go on social media, you print out their address, you take a picture of them, and you say, okay, public, do your thing. Wow, that was really easy. Boom. And then it just gets crazy. 
Typically, the individuals are called out on social media kind of to magnify in the public arena what they've done, this horrible, horrible thing, and then a campaign to cancel them. And Susan, there's a lot of different things you can do to cancel somebody, right? You can, you can talk organizations into canceling their speaking engagements, right? We see that all over in our campuses and all over the place. Um, and if it's a business that is deemed irresponsible or unchristian or something you don't like, we boycott them, right? We, we don't give them attention. We don't give them the bullhorn that they want. We, we take it away by not participating, right? So there's, there are different ways that we can cancel um, people. And with all of these types of issues, there's two really legitimate sides. I, I didn't recognize that at first. I mean, I had my opinion, right? You all probably have your opinion, but I kind of dug into it, and it's like there's got to be another side to this, um, so I'm first, I'm just going to very, very quickly, some arguments for or, or against this cancel culture, um, what it does to us, it, the, the, the cons of, of, of cancel culture. And again, these are the only the opinions, the, the opinions that I held early on. I didn't hold any other opinions because I didn't understand. I never really bothered to look, right? One of the things that cancel culture does, it, it, it amounts to online bullying, Right? It can incite violence and threats even worse than the original offense being called out. Right? Rather than reasoned judgments, we get mob mentality, lynch mobs. Right? Vigilante justice, which is often wrong or overdone. Right? Or, or it, the call-out culture um, is not productive, does not bring about social change. Critics point out that the only one that feels good is the angry person making the angry post. They feel all self-righteous and they feel like, okay, I have changed society. But the only thing that's changed is, is, is them. You know, the rest of society is, is, is now angry. <laughs> Many have promoted individual conversations in the face of this idea, this cancel culture. Instead of calling them out, we call in. I guess th this is a new phrase, call in. Have a conversation with them. Instead of going public, right, and shaming them and, and you know, calling in. Interesting. And then the one that struck me, the last one, call-out call culture is a slippery slope and leads to intolerance as people systematically exclude anyone who disagrees with their views. It's just a shutting down of anybody who makes us uncomfortable. Any kind of opinion that ruffles our feathers, we shun, right? Kind of a religious word. But again, we ask, how will we understand opposing viewpoints if we never discuss the opposing, opposing viewpoints? Right? And again, opposing, when I say opposing, we, we automatically in our heads think like bad, like um, an, an enemy or so, but, but in, this, in this frame, it's just a different opinion, just a different, and I had to learn this as a leader, right? The, the, the easiest thing for a leader to do is to study a problem, completely come up with a solution, and then assume that nobody else has looked at the problem and nobody else has a solution, and assuming that mine is correct and everybody else is wrong, when in fact, everybody else is, is just different, and I just kind of got to get ahead of my, my head around that fact. They're not wrong. They're just different from my opinions. They came to different conclusions. That's okay. That happens. So I did some digging around, and I found that there was a whole different side to this issue, whole different perspective. I'm just going to point out a couple things. Uh, Call-out culture allows marginalized people to seek accountability where the justice system has failed them, right? For powerful criminal convictions are rare in part because these people have better tools to work the justice system, and they rarely fit the criminal profile, right? They, they look clean. They look like, that's not a criminal. That's my neighbor. So in the court of public opinion, that ends up where the accusations have to be made because wealthy and powerful people can work the system. And tightly related to this idea... Call-out culture gives a voice to disenfranchised and less powerful people. 
and this is a quote, the critics of cancel culture are plainly frightened by a new set and uniquely powerful kind of public criticism, but by a new set of critics, young progressives, including many minorities and women who largely through social media have obtained a seat at the table where matters of justice and etiquette are debated, and they're banging it loudly to make up for lost time. That's just a quote. You get that idea. If you don't have access, if you don't have a voice through social media, you now have a voice, and it's out there. So there's some legitimate pros and cons to the effectiveness effectiveness of cancel culture, but that's really not what we're going to be talking about this morning. That's not our concern. Our concern is the appropriateness of cancel culture. How does it fit in with God's plan of sanctification, of, of growing you into be somebody more like Christ? Is it appropriate? Right? Does cancel culture grow you as a Christian in the manner that God intends? And equally important for the church, what are we doing to help the marginalized people for whom the justice system has failed? What are we doing to give a positive voice to disenfranchised and less, pe- less powerful people? Right? Why must they resort to cancel culture? That's something that all of us, that, that's, that's, our, that's not a their problem. That's not a them problem. That's an our problem. If we have not figured out a way to give voice to disenfranchised, less powerful people, that's our problem. That's not just theirs. That's on all of us. I'd like to suggest that because we misunderstand the answers to these two questions, we end up, again, intensely disliking God's growth plan for our lives and society kind of remains a self-centered mess. But before we begin, we need to examine our hearts, right? A lot of you are sitting out there going, I don't participate in cancel culture. This is a list. Paul makes use of these lists. He's he's got several of them, right? I think there's one in 1 Corinthians. And he's just talking about the things that are bad, right? Like avoid this stuff. Don't do this stuff. He's really, really clear. Don't do this stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Right? Again, just this is one of Paul's list of really, really, really bad things to avoid. Right? These things don't, don't mesh well with God's kingdom. And my question is, have any of you relationally, and, and just be honest, have any of you relationally canceled these kind of people from your life? Have any of you verbally canceled any of these kind of people in your life to other people in your life? And if you have, you have participated in cancel culture. I'm not trying to harass you. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Um, Again, if you answered yes or you hesitated or you found yourself rationalizing, well, <laughs> you've participated. And again, you know, search, search my heart, oh God, is, is all I'm driving you to do here. Understand something. You shouldn't do these things. I want to make that super, super clear. But these things, what you're, that, that's our mission field. I, I want you to wrap your heads around that. This is our mission field. People who act like this, this is who God sent his son to die for, and who Christ calls us to join his mission in redeeming this stuff in people. That's our mission field. The fact of the matter is, again, I don't want to make anybody feel bad. We all desire, we all desire to be around pleasant people. We all desire not to be around unpleasant people, right? We, 
That totally natural, and, and we, we totally, totally understand that. In fact, um, read an article, Dr. Jennifer Kearns. Uh, she talked about the pleasure pain principle and the reality principle. In the article, she writes that there are essentially basically two ways to approach life. The first, the pain, pleasure pain principle, and then the reality principle. And we all begin with the first, and then some of us eventually make it to the second, but some of us don't, right? We, we stay at that first principle. And the first way of approaching life is by avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. Very simple. Um, if it feels good, then eat it, take it, do it. If it feels bad, spit it out, get rid of it, avoid it, right? Very simple. And it works really well for most organisms, right? That's the way they survive. They get rid of viruses and bacteria, and, you know, and it works great. And, and for human beings, it works great for a little while too, right? When you're, when you're a little baby, right? If you feel good, you coo and you smile, and mom comes and everything is wonderful. And if, if you're not feeling good, you scream bloody murder, and again, everything gets solved, right? Pain, pleasure principle, but we're not babies. <laughs> we're grown-ups now. Um, the second way of approaching life is by facing the reality of the pleasure-pain principle. It's a, it's a dead-end road. It doesn't work for human beings who want to grow. Let me quote here. If we live out our whole lives under the sway of the pleasure-pain principle, we will never make the kinds of investments that lead to a successful, satisfying life. We will never learn to walk, speak, Ride a bike, you know, like Douglas, ride a bicycle or bake a cake. We will eat too much and exercise too little. We will spend too much and save too little. We will be taken over by our greed, which will never be satisfied. We will miss opportunities because we are too frightened to take a risk. We will avoid having intimate relationships or really any relationships at all because relationships by definition involve conflict, pain, and separateness, which we will not be able to stand even though that means we will never love or be loved. In other words, we will waste away because we never challenge ourselves to do anything meaningful. Anything that means anything. Says that Freud called the pleasure-pain principle the nirvana principle. You all understand what nirvana, right? This, this other world where there's no pain, just pleasure. But Dr. Kearns, who wrote the article, she says that, but when you stop and think about it, nirvana in reality is a pretty miserable place given our current condition needing to grow. We grow our minds by learning through experience, by facing frustration rather than evading it. It cannot happen in a vacuum. It cannot happen without pain. It cannot happen in nirvana. And see, as Christians, we all kind of hope and pray and, and we gravitate toward this nirvana existence, but God, I don't think that's where God wants us to be, right? He calls us to be where nirvana isn't, where there's horrible things going on. That's where he calls us to step into, we must push ourselves to engage with the real world in all of its complexities, with all of its challenges, in the face of its uncertainties, and even our fears. We must feel the burn. That got political there. Um, hard work grows the mind, right? I think of calling in rather than calling out. And now I want to compare all of this with Paul's words from chapter 12 of his letter to the Christians in Rome, right? I'm going to start. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, just, just kind of back up a second. If you look at the, this book of Romans, this letter that he wrote to the Christian church um, in the city of Rome, um, from chapters 1 through 11, all of the references to agape love have been about God. 
11 chapters, just how amazing God has been, how, how much he, he gives us mercies and grace and forgiveness. I mean, just, he, he's just crazy amazing. 11 straight chapters, but now in chapter 12, the focus swings, radically swings. And now, in spite of our newness in Christ, right, we're dead to sin, we're alive to God, right? We, we get that, right? Holiness isn't automatic and it's not inevitable, right? It's something that we have to work at. I know a lot of people feel, growing up, well, if I, I'll just go to church and problem solved. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no matter how often I went to church, if I didn't engage with what was being done and what was being spoken, I'd go home. It was like, it's like I'd never been in church. So it's not automatic, it's not inevitable. So pleas for good behavior have to be made and reasons have to be given. And that's really chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15 of the book of Romans. Paul, he gives reasons, he, he, he makes pleas, and he says, here's why. And why? Because growth isn't inevitable and it's not automatic. So he's got to give step-by-step Instructions. So, starting in Romans 12, he proceeds to tell us that in view of 11 chapters, 11 long chapters of God's mercy, we need to do two things first. Two things first, right? This is the first of two things to do first. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, your brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the first thing, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, I want to just kind of capitalize, kind of look at that word worship for just a moment. Um, eventually, or, or excuse me, originally it meant to hire, to be hired out, to work for somebody. Um, and eventually it meant to be uh, this idea that uh, whatever it was that a person would give their whole lives to, right? If you were hiring yourself out as a carpenter, uh, a person might be said um, that that person who's a carpenter has given his whole life over to carpentry, thinks about it when he goes to bed, does it all day long. You know, it's his hobby. It, it's his life. It's, it's, every, it's everything. Um, again, for instance, a person could be said to give their life to the service of beauty, to people, animals, architecture, you know, whatever. And in that sense, it came very, very close to meaning to dedicate one's entire life, not just, again, not just at temple, not just at church, but in every waking moment, this is what the word worship meant. And, and again, we, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Worship, we've kind of crowded it into Sunday morning, right? But in God's word, worship is your 24-7 life. What are you doing with it? Who are you honoring with it? Who are you working for? I guess we could put it that way. Here's the point. When you add this up, this idea of worship... And we add it to the idea of offering our bodies as living sacrifices. True worship becomes the offering of God of one's body in everything that we do. Real worship is the offering of everyday life to him. Not something transacted in church, necessarily. But something which sees the whole world as the temple of the living God. A person might say, I'm going to go to church and worship God. But that same person should be able to say, I'm going to go to the factory and worship God. I'm going to go out in the garden and worship God today. I'm going to go hang out in the street and worship God today. I'm going to go out to my office. I'm going to worship. I'll go anywhere today. Anywhere I go today, I worship God. Again, we're, we're, we, we, we treat this so strangely. Like, this, like there's a, a difference between our bodies and our minds. Um, you think about it traditionally when there's an invitation given. What, where, what are we asked to give to God? Think about it. Gospel presentation, come to the altar. You give your heart to God. You never give your body to God. And yet, Paul's saying, 
you need to give your body too. Right? Liturgy and all the beautiful stuff in here, that's all good and fine. But he says the real worship, the real work, comes with our bodies. No worship is pleasing to God that's purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our physical bodies. See, we kind of lean toward modern-day Gnosticism, right? Our minds, good, bodies, bad. You ever notice how much time we spend cultivating our minds and how little time, how much time we spend destroying our bodies? Like, we don't even give it a second thought. I know, I know, we just did a whole sermon on that, Jerry. Let it go. Okay, all right, good, good, good. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul seems to be saying that worship and service to God, we've got to undergo a change, right? Not of our outward form, but of our inward personality, right? Don't be a chameleon. He seems to be saying, don't be a chameleon, right? Changing to please those around you. Rather, allow God to change your heart. And so there's this, like, this... this either-or world that's, that's being drawn here. And, and now I, I just kind of want to share this with you very quickly. Recent scholarship has altered this just a little bit. And what we're finding out now, these two words, conform and transform, they're not as different as we have made them out to be. Because what we've done is we've made them out to be such different w- words. We've made it out to be um, your, your inner spiritual world is good and your outer uh, form doesn't really need to change. This needs to change. God needs to change this inner, inner world. But the, the physicalness... <laughs> doesn't matter. We, we kind of accidentally, without even thinking about it, we arrive, and that, that is not, that's not scriptural at all. That's not what Paul is saying here either. The either-or situation being created, it's, it's not between parts of our body, right? What Paul is saying here is he, God, wants all of us, every bit of us, mind, body, heart, souls, everything, Nothing remains unchanged. He's not just going to change your person. He's going to change everything about you, everything about you. The, the division or the, the dichotomy being illustrated by Paul is actually not one about, you know, half of me and the other half of me. It's really about the will of God and the will of the world. That's the division that Paul's talking about here. That's don't conform in, to this world, but be transformed by God's world. And the two are radically incompatible, even radically opposed to each other, like they are enemies. The two sets of standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise between the will of this world and the will of God. So violently does it challenge and interrupt and upset the tranquil status quo uh, Karl Barth, maybe some of you heard him, very famous uh, philosopher, theologian, described the Christian way of living, how we interact with each other and how we interact with the rest of the world, not our inward spiritual disciplines, but by the way we interact with each other and the way we interact with the world. He calls that the great disturbance. I, lo- I love that phrase. In fact, I titled my message, The Great Disturbance. Paul says in his other letters that the first step in God's plan is to renew our minds, right? I get that. Renew our minds by way of the word and spirit of God. That happens first. But I want you to recognize something. It's not, I haven't been transformed, but the first step is he transformed my mind. That's super important. My mind is the very first step. Then, as my mind is being renewed by the word and spirit of God, then I'm able to discern and desire the will of God. That's not the end of it. Then, 
I am increasingly transformed by what I increasingly understand. The more I understand it, the more I am in change inside. And then finally, we increasingly, because of all of this, we increasingly do the Word of God. We actually do what we're being told to do instead of learning it again and again and again. We actually go out and we actually do it. And His will involves all of our relationships. And here's the kicker. As we go out and love in all of our relationship, that is God's ways and means of sanctifying the rest of the world, of redeeming creation. We are the method. And the tool in our hands is not cancel culture. <laughs> it's a message that's, that's very difficult. We're going to get into that. Turns out, much to our chagrin, um, other believers and soon-to-be believers, okay, Think about all those people that you really, really, really dislike. They're actually God's way of transforming us. <laughs> Nobody likes that idea. Listen to this. This is Romans 12, 4 and 5. It says, For just as each one of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Right, so we're to offer our bodies to God and our transformation by the renewal of our minds because of his mercy, right? And, and this, is, this, is, this is where it gets difficult, right? We're to love and serve one another as the body of Christ. Why? Because we are one body in Jesus. And so that first part, you know, he, we, he transforms our mind. We understand his will. We then go out and do his will. And apparently... Two things are going to happen as we go out and do his will. We are going to be sanctified and the world is going to be redeemed as we go out and do his will, not as we study it, not, not if we stop at the transformation of our minds or the renewing of our minds, the eventual transformation of our minds and our will. It's got to go all the way to the very, very end of actually doing the will of God and going out and loving people who we don't like. In fact, we don't even want to be in the same room with them. But God seems to be saying that that person, that's my sanctification plan for you. And not only is it my sanctification plan for you, it's my plan to reignite their faith. And I need you to go love them. And I know you hate them, but I need you to love them. That's my plan. <laughs> like, ah, isn't there a better way of doing this? Can't I just read a lot and pray a lot? And it's like, nope. We got to go out with our bodies. And we have to do these things with our bodies, hands and feet. And then in the last third of chapter 12, the cream on top with the cherry, right? This is the part that we kick and scream about. Well, we argue and we debate about it, whichever way you want to put that. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to revenge, avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I, I, I read this voice, this, this passage, and another passage always comes to mind, and it, it, I, I kind of parallel them in my mind. First, Second Peter 3, 9, you're not going to see it up there. I'm just going to read it here. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, he's lovingly patient with you, and he wants you to be lovingly patient with the people that you cannot stand to be in the same room with. And more often than not, again, that person is God's chosen instrument 
to grow you and to grow them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're not shaming them. This phrase simply means that they will recognize the error of their ways, and they will go, oh, I need to change. Again, so it's not shaming them. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why? Because God alone is able to provide perfect justice, and he wants all of his people to experience his perfect justice. And again, in all of this, all of this loving brothers and sisters in Christ who are really, really difficult to love, and loving all of those who hate us, and in fact, they hate Jesus too, in all of this, studying scripture, prayer, the internal spiritual disciplines are absolutely crucial. They are the first step. They are what leads to the transformation of our, the renewing of our minds and the transformation of our minds. But the transformation of us, our bodies, is going to require us to leave this place and go out and offer our bodies to our neighbors, right? The ones that's a stranger, that's so strange that you don't even, you don't even, you don't even want to talk to them. But God seems to be saying, I need you to talk to them. I need you to go talk with them. It really is all about attitude. If we see difficult people in situations as, as an aberration or a punishment, we will always avoid these situations and will remain unaffected. And there's nothing that God wants less than for us to remain unaffected. That is the least thing that he wants in our lives. He wants us affected. He wants us to be rubbing shoulders with people in pain who are mean. Why? Why? Because that's our sanctification process. That's how we learn to love, right? I don't learn to love by loving somebody who's really, really lovable. That requires zero effort. But to try to love somebody that I can't stand, wow, that drives me to my knees. That forces me to pray. But if we see these people in these situations as God offering us and them new mercies, that changes everything. It changes everything, right? So what's so, so disturbing about this Christian ethics found in Romans 12? Here's what Paul seems to be saying about difficult people and situations that force change on us when we don't want anything changed, right? The great disturbance is the way God changes you. It's the way he gives a voice to disenfranchised and less powerful people. It's the way God helps marginalized people for whom the justice system has failed. The great disturbance puts an end to cancel culture. If we love these people rather than calling them out, that changes, changes everything, changes the whole landscape. People will follow because they'll see that that, that, was, not, that was nice. I want to share two, two very quick things, and I want to close. When I first, the first church that I became a member at as an adult, um, my father-in-law talked me into being on the board. Okay, I'll be on the board. He said it was really easy. He lied. There was, there was somebody at the church, and they were, they didn't do anything immoral, they were just the most difficult person in the world to be around. They, they literally drove pastors from this church. 
And so when I got there, this, this came up in a board meeting, and it was discussed, and it was decided that we would write a letter to this person, and we would cancel them. Again, they didn't do anything that would require removal from the body of Christ. And I signed that letter, and to this day, I'm ashamed of that letter. I, I have it. I kept it. Just to remind me. See, I have, a, I have a choice, and you all have a choice. We can participate and cancel culture. We can call people out. Or we can have conversation with them. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And, it, and I know it's really easy to love the one that you love. And, I, and again, I'm just going to challenge you here. That person that I asked you to pray for at the beginning of the service, on Valentine's Day, what if you sent them something? What if they were the recipient of your Valentine's Day something? Just a challenge. Bow your heads. Father, you've given us a choice through your Apostle Paul. We can strive to get only pleasure and avoid pain, or we can face the reality that that system doesn't work. We get nowhere. Father, you've called us to be salt and light. The idea behind salt is it preserves things that are going to go bad or are going bad and gives flavors to things that are blah. And light chases away darkness. Father, you've given us a choice to be salt and light or to be unaffected. Father, give us the courage and the renewed mind to live out our lives like your son gave up his rights. He did not claim, did not demand those rights but he gave up those rights. Thank you for this perfect example and power by your Holy Spirit so that we too can become Christ-like. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.